Let's move back into the fears, and I think these are legitimate fears. The bat is, in fact, a carrier of rabies. Not quite. Oh. A carrier, and I'm going to take you back down the path of history a ways here, to a woman by the name of Mary Mallon in the early 19th or early 20th century in New York. She was an immigrant from Ireland who worked as a household domestic, as a cook for a wealthy family. She was a carrier of a disease called typhoid. She harbored the pathogen that causes typhoid fever, but she never contracted the disease herself. She was able to shed that pathogen and infect others, and she did, in fact, infect a number of people um, over the course of her career because she refused to follow the instructions she was given for hygiene, uh, keeping her hands clean and that sort of thing, and ended her days actually in a sanitarium because she couldn't or wouldn't um, take the precautions necessary to protect the people she was working for. That's what a carrier is, someone who harbors the pathogen, can shed the pathogen and infect others, but never contracts the disease themselves. In the pandemic, the term asymptomatic, is that basically what you're talking about? She was about? asymptomatic, but she was never actually ill. People who, in today's terms in the with the pandemic, are asymptomatic with COVID-19 still actually have the disease. And they are shedding it. They are simply, they are not harboring the pathogen. Because if you're harboring the pathogen as a carrier, you never stop harboring the pathogen and spreading it. People who are asymptomatic with COVID reach a point the same as anybody who is symptomatic where they are no longer shedding that virus and, and, and capable of infecting others. So there's a distinction there between an asymptomatic patient and a carrier. They are what is considered a reservoir, which means that a certain percentage of the bat population may actually be infected with rabies and symptomatic, which is when they're, they're shedding the virus. They can shed the virus for a period of time before it kills them. Rabies is a fatal disease, and it's, a, it's not a pretty way to go. Less than one-half of 1% 1 of bats are rabid. It's a self-perpetuating and self-limiting disease. The, the virus is very fragile outside of a live host, and a bat that is infected, it's, and they're infected the same way that a human would be through direct contact with infected saliva or nervous system fluid or tissue from another infected animal, and it's direct contact between saliva or central nervous system fluid or tissues and blood or mucous membranes on the receiving end, it has to be a direct contact. So that's a bite or a scratch where there's exposure to those substances directly into the mucous membranes like the eyes, the nose, or the mouth, or the bloodstream. That's the only way that's reliably documented as a rabies transmission, according to the CDC. If the bat is infected with rabies and is shedding the virus, then 
if you pick it up barehanded and you get bitten, you've been exposed and you need to seek treatment. And this is why when we are talking to the public about bats, if they find a bat that needs help, that's down on the ground and appears to be injured or orphaned or you know whatever the situation is, they should not try to handle the bat barehanded and they should not try to care for it themselves. They need to contact a permitted, trained bat rehabilitator, follow the instructions they're given to safely contain the bat, and then get it to that rehabilitator as quickly as possible. The rehabilitator is trained to observe and quarantine the bat and make sure that it is not rabid before it gets released. Kate, I assume you've handled many bats over the years. Have you ever had the occasion to actually handle a rabies-infected animal? Thousands of bats over the years. And I have had my hands on perhaps a half a dozen bats that were actually rabid. And I have been bitten by a rabid bat. But like all qualified, competent bat rehabilitators, I went through a series of vaccinations before I began working with them um, to protect me from rabies. And if I have an exposure, then I go for a booster shot as a follow-up. And so I, I don't have any concern that I'm going to contract rabies down the line and die from it. But it's a matter of knowing and understanding that we're talking about a species that can be infected, just as a cat or a dog could be infected, uh, that they can bite. And so knowing how to handle them correctly and knowing what to look for in a bat that might be rabid makes a huge difference in the, in the level of risk in working with them. But it's a risk that those of us who do this are willing to take, knowing how to protect ourselves in the process, we're willing to take that because we think bats are worth it. Is there a story that also might implicate bats in these human viruses? There are a lot of stories that might implicate bats in human viruses. The issue is that bats, like many other wild animal species are reservoirs for a wide variety of pathogens that they have evolved to adapt to. Their bodies allow those pathogens to reside in them without doing any harm to them, and they may actually function in some way to benefit those animals. We don't understand fully how that works. But immunologically, wildlife is far better suited for life on Earth than we are. And when we start invading that space, we can, through genetics, we can trace back the origins of diseases like Ebola and HIV and other dreadful diseases to wildlife reservoirs. And they would have stayed there if we hadn't gone and stirred the pot. When we bring wild animals into a situation like the wet markets, and we need to understand what a wet market is. It's not necessarily a place where people go in and buy an animal and it's butchered right there and it's a huge wet mess. That's not what that term refers to. If you think in terms more of a farmer's market, but with live animals, that's what a wet market is. So there's a huge variety of animal life available for sale at these markets. 
the problem is that they are not housed individually or separated from each other by species. So we have, in the case of COVID-19, the Asian horseshoe bat housed in an enclosure that is in very close proximity to other species, whether that be um, other wildlife species or domestic species like pigs or chickens or something like that. So those pathogens have an opportunity over time to spill over into these other species. As I understand it from reading the literature, the original viral pathogen for SARS-CoV-2 left the Asian horseshoe bat, which is an insectivorous bat, um, spilled over into another species, which has yet to be identified because there are so many species that those bats come in contact with in those markets. Somewhere between 30 and 70 years ago is when that spillover is likely to have occurred. The genetics tell us that there's a divergence there. And then from there, it progresses to a point where it can spill over to a human population. A really classic example of this is hendrovirus, which is found in Australia. The reservoir is a fruit bat species that's endemic to Australia. The intermediate species that allows the virus to mutate and affect humans is horses. Horses are an invasive species in Australia. They were introduced by the British. The horse comes in contact with contaminated grass or fruit that's been um, in contact with urine and feces from a bat that is shedding that virus. The horse gets sick. The human intervenes as a veterinarian, comes in contact with that pathogen, and it's deadly to horse humans. The reason that we know there's a divergence there and, and a, a, a spillover to a species other than humans first is because they tested, I believe it was 128 permitted, trained bat rehabilitators throughout Australia who came in contact with the species of bats that, may, that are involved in this. None of them showed any indication through blood work that they had ever been exposed to hendrovirus. So there's no direct transmission from bats to humans. There's an intermediate species. And that's true of most spillover events. We can identify through a lot of rigorous lab work what the originating species is, but we have to do the tracing to find where it went between that original host species and people. And there's usually at least one other stop along the way and frequently more than that. I'm assuming that scientists are regularly taking samples of animals looking for these crossovers. Yes, absolutely. Um, most of the work that they're doing is um, not necessarily invasive to the wildlife. They're collecting, or, or it's minimally invasive. They may be collecting uh, fur samples, blood samples, but they're not capturing and killing wildlife to pursue this information. They're taking specimens, getting the information and the samples that they need, and then releasing those animals, which is an important factor. Um, bringing in an animal that is potentially 
involved in a disease process that affects humans and just slaughtering them wholesale doesn't solve the problem. And we've learned through to- over time that culling, uh, which is what that practice is called, culling a species of wildlife to prevent a disease outbreak is not an effective strategy because the only way to deal with it if we're going to go that path is to completely eradicate the species from the planet. And we don't want to do that. They're, they have a right to be here just as we do. They serve a purpose. They have a place in the natural cycle of life. And for us to go out and obliterate them for fear that they might contract, they might give us a disease is foolish. And we harm ourselves in doing that. Well, I think the chapter entitled Animal Makes Human Sick is incomplete. There must be another story where the human threatens the animal. There are a lot of stories where the humans threaten the animal. Um, and we we can actually look at human to human as well, if, if we care to go down that path. The Europeans, when they came over and started exploring North and South America, introduced pathogens that the native populations had absolutely no resistance to. And a lot of individuals were killed by diseases that were common in European civilizations. Things like um, the measles were brought over and affected native populations, and the results were devastating. Um, Entire civilizations were wiped out by that thoughtless action. We also transmit pathogens when we go from one place to another. We pick up stuff on our shoes, um, and that very thing has happened here in the United States about 14 years now since uh, white-nose syndrome was discovered affecting North American bats. The initial finding was in a cave outside of Albany, New York in the 2006-2007 winter surveillance season. Um, This also kind of underscores how important bats really are because biologists spend a lot of time in the winter going into caves and counting bats to assess the health of those populations. And in this particular cave, they would normally go in and they would find about 100,000 little brown bats, which is a particular species, uh, hibernating in the cave. And they would just kind of count noses and and go on. But in the winter of 2006-2007, they went into that cave to do their count. And instead of finding about 100,000 fat, happy little bats snoozing peacefully in their hibernation torpor, in that cave, they walked in to find the the area surrounding the entrance to the cave and the floor of the cave covered in dead bodies. And there were perhaps a hundred bats barely clinging to life on the ceiling of that cave. They had a growth of fungal material, a white ring around their muzzle, which is where the name white nose syndrome comes from. Um, and it has taken a long time to find not just to identify the pathogen, because we've known for some time now what it is, but to trace where it came from, understand the biology and the genetics of that fungus, and then learn what we might be able to do to help mitigate it. Kate, the collapse of that colony, that's outstanding. That's that's scary. A thousand bats mm-hmm. down to a hundred? A hundred thousand bats down to a hundred. Goodness. Are there other examples of great colonies? Yes, unfortunately, we've seen, we, they actually stopped counting and updating the number uh, of bat mortalities at about six and a half million. Um, 
the entire populations of northern long-eared bats and tricolored bats are at risk. Um, in areas where the fungus is found and those bats used to persist, we've seen population declines upwards of 97%. Approximately 90% of the little brown bats have also succumbed to this fungus and died. So we're seeing huge population losses. From that one cave and one species 14 years ago, we now have the disease, white nose syndrome, confirmed in bats in 35 states and seven Canadian provinces. We have evidence that the fungus is present in four additional states in the United States. And we have 15 species that are affected by the disease with mortality. Um, and we have six additional species that have been found to have the fungus without confirmation of the disease. I have to back up a moment. It's 12 species that are confirmed with the disease, and that includes two endangered species and one threatened species that are now even at greater risk. And then the six additional, which includes two endangered species that have had the fungus found on them without confirmation of the disease at this point. Quite a few years ago, I was a spelunker, um, just couldn't find enough caves to spend time in and photograph. Is there something that spelunkers are doing that contributes to this? Potentially, yes. There are now decontamination protocols available and in place in publicly managed caves. The The first and foremost is that if you are caving in an area where white nose syndrome has been identified, you have one set of gear that you use there and you decontaminate following protocol every time you use it. But then if you're going into a cave in an area where white nose syndrome or the fungus are not confirmed or found, you have separate gear that never is used in a white nose syndrome positive area. And you never use your white nose syndrome positive gear in a negative area. That can help to reduce that transmission. To the best of our understanding, this fungus was brought into the United States, probably on somebody's caving gear. They went into a cave in Asia where the fungus has been for quite some time now and unknowingly picked up spores on their gear, and then went into that cave outside of Albany and left it behind. COVID-19, there are protocols that protect us to a great deal. The mask, hand washing, the distancing. I can't imagine, though, that there's anything like that with a spore. Um, isn't a spore, a, I don't even know if it's a living or non-living thing, but it seems to me a spore hangs around as a spore, a dangerous spore, for a long, long time. It can persist for a long time. This is a, it's a cold-loving fungus. It is difficult to get rid of. And the other complicating factor is that caves are very complex microbiomes. Each cave has its own unique set of organisms that lives inside it. And that may include bats and lizards or frogs or fish, insects, other bacteria and fungi that are endemic to that particular environment. We introduce a new pathogen, this new fungus, and it's got a 
huge, rich area to feed on. And it's not susceptible to some of the things that we might think to try. But we also have to be very careful what we put in there. We don't want to introduce another invasive element that could potentially harm the other life forms that are in that cave because all of those life forms are interdependent. We can't eradicate a species of beetle or lizard by applying something to get rid of this fungus in order to save the bat because the bats in some respect are dependent upon that other species to survive in that environment. It's all very tightly interconnected and we have to move very carefully, which is why it takes so much time to find solutions to these things. It's not a quick fix. We have to understand that um, we're seeing fungal diseases in a number of other species. There's the uh, chytrid fungus that affects frogs. There are fungal pathogens that are affecting snakes. Um, and I, I think there are certainly others that I have not read up on, so I'm not necessarily as familiar with them. Um, but all of nature is affected by these kinds of issues. And we see species being eradicated daily, either because of a disease that's been introduced or through other human action. Um, wildfires, while they are a natural occurrence and they're a part of maintaining healthy growth in a forest, they can be devastating. And the you know the fires that are currently burning in California and Oregon, the vast majority of those are because of human activity, and we're destroying habitat and ruining air quality for those animals, and we're destroying plants, uh, trees, and other growth that is important to the health of the whole planet by recklessly burning it down. Kate, you've contributed so much. You've motivated me to continue to learn more about this subject, maybe find a way that I can become a positive actor in all of this. Are there certain things that you'd recommend listeners to do regarding the problem with the essential animal, the bat? Absolutely. There are a number of things that people can do. First and foremost, to become educated about the wildlife that lives in your own backyard. I'm daily confounded by the number of people who bring me wild animals for rehabilitative care and tell me that they had no idea that we had bats in Dallas-Fort Worth. And there are millions of bats in Dallas-Fort Worth. We just don't see them. We're not looking at what's in our backyard. We need to take an opportunity to step away from some of the electronics and go back out in the real world and breathe the fresh air and see what's out there, observing respectfully from a distance without intervening and, and trying to touch everything we see. Um, there are a lot of resources available for people to learn. There's an entire website devoted to just white-nose syndrome and bats um, that's managed by the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's called whitenosesyndrome.org. And they maintain current statistics on uh, where the fungus is, where the disease is, what species are affected, and what people can do. Um, following reputable wildlife organizations online is certainly a way to become educated. Um, 
there are a number of, of really good books either online or at a library if you're a, a paper and ink lover as I am. Uh, reading, reading information is the best way to learn what's going on and then support the causes that that really speak to them about what's important. Um, you know, supporting their local wildlife rehabilitators by making a donation if they find an animal and take it in for care. Um, visiting educational institutions, museums and zoos that can help them to learn about the natural world without causing damage to it um, is one way to do that. Just just getting out and, and experiencing the world in its reality rather than through a television screen or a video game. So I think we have to step outside our comfort zone a little bit and and reacquaint ourselves with the natural world. We've we've stepped away from it quite a distance through technology. And technology is not a bad thing, but it's not everything. Is there any um, good news with the white nose syndrome? There is some good news. There's a lot of work being done. There are hundreds of researchers working on this. Um, and there are a number of promising avenues. There are some, uh, they're called non-volatile organic compounds that are being looked at as possible ways to at least slow down the progression of this pathogen in caves. Again, we have to be very careful what we introduce um, there's a line of research looking at uh, UVC radiation um, since it appears from some research that uh, the causative fungus, which is called Pseudogymnoascus destructans, does not have the ability to repair uh, damage to its DNA um, that is caused by UVC radiation. What we don't know about that is the duration, the intensity uh, of exposure to UVC that would actually cause the fungus to die off. We don't know that. And there's some work being done in that regard. What we don't want to see is people running around in caves waving UV lights thinking that they're helping because that would not be helping. Um, we still have to be very careful how we approach this. Uh, we are potentially seeing some uh, small population recoveries in some areas. Bats that have survived the disease um, are beginning to reproduce based on tracking information. The challenge there, of course, being that these bats only have offspring once a year and at best they're having twins so it would take a lot of bats having strong healthy babies with 100 percent survival to replace that six and a half million or more that we've lost to date 